Welcome to the Wednesday Night Bible Study with Don Williams. This podcast is in honor of Don's legacy and teaching. He lived what he preached. Enjoy. You have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray that uh, pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, and this is speaking now of Jesus Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together or consist. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. I think King James Version says so that in everything he might be preeminent. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's sufferings or afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end, I labor, struggling with all his energy, which he so powerfully works in me. May God bless to us this reading from his word tonight. Now, um, last week when we were kind of introducing this letter, we were talking about the fact that uh, Paul is writing to a church that he didn't personally establish, so he knows of this church through a man by the name of Epaphras, who did found the church and who's brought uh, news of the church to Paul. Paul's in prison as he writes. And uh, the Colossians are faced with a, a, a uh, assault upon their faith. And uh, next Wednesday night, we'll really discover some aspects of what this is when we uh, study chapter 2. But toward the conclusion of our teaching last Wednesday night, what we said was that rather than beginning the letter by dealing with the um, opponents to the gospel and those who would subvert the faith of the Colossians, Paul begins not on the negative in terms of defending the faith against these opponents, but he begins with a positive, namely by presenting this great, glorious picture of Jesus Christ. 
And in the first chapter of Colossians, we have one of the central passages in the whole of the Word of God concerning who Christ is, what He's done, and who He is now. Uh, kind of the big four passages uh, out of the New Testament are John's Gospel in chapter 1, uh, Philippians chapter 2, Colossians chapter 1, and Hebrews chapter 1. So we're at one of the four critical passages for understanding uh, the answer to two questions. Number one, who is Jesus Christ? Number two, what has He done for us? Or why, you know, why Christ? Why did He come into the world? And what has He done for us? So those are the two questions that, uh, uh, that Paul answers in this first chapter of Colossians. And again, he presents the big picture of Christ, uh, and then he shows how inferior and alien uh, those who would try to subvert the faith are when he gets to chapter 2. So tonight we begin uh, on the positive, this big picture. Now, Paul prays for the church in verses 9 through 14, and then he begins his exposition of the person of Jesus Christ. And as he prays for the church, Notice, and we'll just uh, just highlight this for a moment. In verse 9, he prays basically that they may know the will of God, that God will give them wisdom, insight, and understanding. Look at it. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you, asking God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that. In other words, in a sense, Paul prays one prayer. And that is that the Colossians would have spiritual wisdom and understanding and be filled up with the fullness of the knowledge of God's will. Why does he pray that prayer? Well, it's really honed to the Colossians. He prays that prayer for them because there is this counter movement. Uh, there, there, there are these opponents, and again, we'll deal with them in chapter 2, which will be next week. There's this false spirituality that's flooding into the church. And, uh, and you know, and all these confusing philosophies and claims and counterclaims that are being made, and in this spiritual confusion, what Paul then prays for, he pours his heart out to God that they may be filled with the knowledge of God's will and spiritual wisdom and understanding, because of, as God puts his truth into their minds, then they're going to discern the stupidity and the falsehood and the inferiority of all this stuff that's flooding in upon them. Now, let me tell you, I really believe that this is relevant for the church today. Again, I'll talk more about this next week. I'm trying to get you to come back next week. I mean, you know, it's like, <laughs> more to come. Keep tuned, you know. So I, I, I'm just kind of kidding. But, uh, but I'll talk more about it next week. But we live in, in an age in which there's just a flood of, of spirituality. Have you noticed it? Like, you know, there's some tests in terms of, uh, like, what's on the New York Times bestseller list? And uh, The Celestine Prophecy is one, is one of the books that has just sold, you know, a huge, huge amount across the country. Um, there's a book, this out of, you know, um, near-death experiences this woman had and got caught up in heaven, and she has written this whole book that was on the top of the New York Times bestseller list for a long time. It's now dropped down a little bit, but uh, about her encounter with angels and with Jesus and with all this heavenly stuff. And, and uh, you know, some of it kind of rings with a certain amount of truth to it, and then there's all these other things. I happen to pick that book up and read it that, that, that are clearly unbiblical. And so, you know, but... It isn't whether, you know, these are just kind of tests of the, of the, uh, of the flood of, of kind of spiritual things that are, uh, that are, have come into the culture today. And so in that sense, our world is similar to the world that the Colossians face. So what does Paul pray for? Simply that they'll know God's will. That they'll have His wisdom and understanding. And as they have that, then they're going to be able to discern what's from the enemy, what's simply out of human imagination and, and fantasy and wishful thinking 
and, and uh, what the truth of God is. So out of that truth encounter, the truth of God, God filling them with the knowledge of himself and, and, and his wisdom, then everything else will flow for them. And so Paul sees the results of this. Look at it in verse 10. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord, walk worthy of the Lord, so that, that, that'll be the moral consequence of knowing the will of God, may please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, so they'll not only be morally right, you might say, or righteous in their living, uh, but they'll also be socially, they'll, they'll bless the world around them with good works, uh, their light will shine before men, they'll, men will see their good works, as Jesus says in uh, Matthew chapter 5, and glorify their Father who is in heaven, so good works will flood out of them, um, as they uh, as they're filled with the knowledge of God's will and that spiritual wisdom and understanding, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, and so uh, God will bless them with the power of His Spirit to live uh, this new life in Christ according to His glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father. So uh, uh, notice uh, this this double consequence Paul says of of knowing God's will and having that wisdom and understanding. Namely, they'll endure through all the suffering of this life and, and they'll, their character will be built. They'll, uh, they'll have patience. They'll achieve patience rather than just, you know, running into adversity and copping out and blowing out. You know, they'll, they'll go through this so their character will be built and at the same time, joyfully giving thanks. That's always the surprise. <laughs> it's the surprise of the gospel that in the midst of endurance and patience and suffering and those things that God allows to come into our lives, he gives us a, a sense of joy and gratitude and thanksgiving. And Paul says that, that, that uh, spiritual power that God will give to, uh, so that you'll endure uh, and, uh, and be patient at the same time, have this great joy, has to do with this inheritance that, uh, th that's waiting for you. Look at verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. So this is, this is the great you know, hope that we move toward. This is the, the eschatological reality of our faith. Eschaton has it, it's the Greek word for the end. This is the final big thing, and that's the glorious inheritance that we have. And so Paul says we'll have gratitude and thanksgiving as our character is built, as we suffer and endure through this life. God will give us joy, and we'll have the big, uh, you know, glory ahead of us that we're moving toward. And having said that, and this is all the consequences, again, of, of being filled with the truth of God, uh, having said that, then Paul uh, goes on and, and makes a comment, you might say in verse 13, for he's rescued us from the dominion of darkness. In other words, the, we, the, the reason that we can know that we have this glorious inheritance and this kingdom of light is that we've been rescued. He's rescued us from the dominion of darkness. That's the satanic kingdom in this world, the fallen kingdom of Satan, and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves or his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. And so it's through the cross of Jesus Christ through that last great battle fought on the cross where Christ died for the sins of the world, defeated the devil, and destroyed his power in the cross, it's there that the great transition is made, both historically and spiritually, from the darkness into the light, from Satan's dominion into Christ's kingdom. And so when we come to the cross where we are rescued and redeemed, then we're brought into that kingdom. So, you know, how do we bring people into the kingdom? How do we rescue them out of the darkness? By proclaiming the cross calling them to the cross when they come to the cross and kneel there and receive Jesus Christ and his forgiveness into their lives, bingo, they're released from that darkness and they're brought into the light. Having said that then, and this is all a you know, consequence of Paul's, Paul's prayer, he then now, and again, see what's in his mind is all this flood of, 
of a false and counterfeit spirituality that's undermining the faith of the Colossians. It's kind of flooding in upon them. Having said that, then Paul moves. It's the basis for his move to, to, uh, to give a great exposition of who Christ is and what he's done. Now, Paul uh, uh, is going to tell us three things about Jesus Christ in this passage. Okay, First of all, his eternal relationship with the Father. That's the first thing. And Paul just says that in a in a phrase, okay? He is the image of the invisible God. That deals with with a son's relationship with the father, okay? So and and, uh, and that's number one. Then number two, the son's relationship to creation, okay? The whole material world. And uh, then number three, his relationship to redemption, to those who have been redeemed out of the fallenness of this world into the, that kingdom of light, into the kingdom of Christ. Uh, into the church, into the body of Christ. So Paul's going to talk about Jesus Christ's relationship to the Father, his relationship to creation, his relationship to redemption or to the redeemed. The created, that's us, and the redeemed, that's us, and how Jesus Christ relates to all of this. And not only us personally, but the whole scope, you might say, of reality. Okay, So Paul's going to uh, sketch those th three uh, things out here. So let's take a look at each one, okay? He is the image of the invisible God. That's the first thing. In other words, God is invisible. You cannot see God. God is a spirit. No one has ever seen God. You see God, you die. You see God in His glory, you're dead. Okay? That, the Bible clearly teaches that, all right? God, our God is a consuming fire. He is so majestic in His holiness. He, he is so... Oh, he would be like a zillion billion suns, you know, just exploding right before us. We would be in, totally annihilated in the presence of God. And God is a spirit. He is not a material being. He's not like an idol or, uh, you know, like some giant human being blown up big or what have you. God, uh, God, God is a spirit. He, he has existed from all eternity as a spirit. But the invisible God makes himself visible through his son. And so Jesus Christ here is identified as the image of the invisible God. In other words, Jesus Christ makes the invisible God visible. He is the one through whom the invisible God makes himself visible. Now this is one of the ways that the New Testament expresses who Christ is, who the Son is in relationship to the Father. In John's Gospel, at the beginning of John's Gospel, Jesus is spoken of as the eternal word or the eternal speech of God. You see, a word communicates the inner being or essence of the person. As you open yourself up and you speak forth your word and you reveal who you are, uh, you reveal your being through that spoken word. So the very being of God is revealed through the word of God, the eternal word of God, Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God. Or the, the, the invisible God, you see, makes himself visible through the son who reveals, you know, fully the father. So he is the one through whom the father makes himself known which, of course, implies that he is in relationship to the Father throughout all eternity, that he shares the very divine nature of the Father, uh, that as the image of God, the image of the invisible God, he is not separate from God, but he is the reflection of the very essence and being and reality of God. So Paul, here again, he's using simply one, uh, you know, one analogy uh, in terms of, 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 of saying something about who, who the Son is in relationship to the Father. So he makes the Father know. You want to see God? Look at Jesus Christ that simple. 
In John's Gospel in chapter 14, you remember Philip's question, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. And Jesus says, have I been with you so long, Philip, and you do not know me. He who has seen, the, seen me has seen the Father. So it's the Son who makes the Father known. He's the image of the invisible God. His relationship to the Father is as the revealer of the Father. He is the self-revelation of the living and true God. Okay? So that's number one. But number two, now what Paul's more interested in the, in, in the next point, so he elaborates on it. Namely, he's the firstborn over all creation. So his relationship to the Father is as the image of the invisible God. But his relationship to creation is as the firstborn. Now, I have to save you from any possible heresy at this point, okay? Because if you talk to the Jehovah's Witnesses as they, as they come by knocking on your door, and they tell you that Jesus Christ is not God, he is not deity, he's less than deity, they will oftentimes appeal to this text. And they will say, he is the firstborn of all creation. In other words, he's the most glorious created being. Matter of fact, he's a great angelic being. And, uh, but he's a part of the creation. See, he's the firstborn of all creation. And so, uh, so they'll try to use this text to prove that Jesus Christ is not the eternal Son of God forever and ever. Okay? Now, let me show you from the text why this is impossible why the Jehovah's Witness position on this passage is impossible. Look at it. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created. Now, by that very statement, by him all things were created, Paul is excluding the possibility that Jesus Christ is a part of the creation. Because how can all things be created through him if he is a created being? That's totally illogical. If he's a created being, something else had to create him, right? But all, all of creation has come into being through him, which means he pre-exists creation. So he can't be a created being. He can't be the archangel Michael, as the Jehovah's Witnesses claim. He stands on this side of creation. In other words, uh, pardon me, on that side of creation. He pre-exists creation because all things came into being through him. Okay? So, having said that, what does it mean then to say that he is the firstborn of all creation? Does it mean that he is the first created being? No, it doesn't. What it means is that Jesus Christ is in the position of the firstborn in respect to creation. What is the position of the firstborn? The position of the firstborn is the heir. Again, if you go to, to the Old Testament, you can read some famous stories like Esau and Jacob. You remember how Jacob stole his birthright, the, the birthright of his brother. And the whole conflict between Esau and Jacob is you know, not just the story of sibling rivalry and uh, pride and all kinds of things. It's all of that. But it's also based upon the fact that the firstborn is the heir. In other words, the firstborn bears the authority of, of the family and he is the titular head of the family after the father. So... According to, uh, to Jewish custom and Jewish law, it's the firstborn who is, is, the, is the primary person in the family. And, you know, we kind of carry that even, you know, somewhat distantly in our culture today. I mean, you know, there's more, in a sense, more expectation, more responsibility uh, that lies upon the firstborn. And in many families that are highly traditional, it will be the oldest son usually, or or possibly the oldest daughter, depending on the family today, but it'll be the oldest child who has the authority in the family. I mean, 
this is often too true in traditional families. But in the Jewish world, this was absolutely true. And so what Paul says of Jesus Christ, who, again, from all eternity is the image of the invisible God, who precedes all of creation, but in respect to creation, in relationship to creation, he's in the position of the firstborn. In other words, he is the one who is the heir of all things because everything came into being through him. Yeah. Yeah, he could. But they, they, they do argue that, but it fails on this text because Paul would have to say, Paul could not say that all things were made through him if he is a created being. Because if he's a created being, if God created him and then created everything else through him, the fact that God created him makes it, puts him on the side of creation. In other words, he is finite rather than infinite. He is, he is, he is uh, you know, a part of the creation rather than a part of the creator. So, so the line is clearly drawn consistently through the New Testament. Jesus Christ stands on the side of God as deity, and all of creation stands, you know, uh, this side of, of Jesus Christ himself. So Paul is being illogical at this point. If, he, if, if Paul believes that Christ is a created being, and then all things came into existence through him. So, again, you know, they try to make the case, but I'm simply saying in the context, the case fails. Either that or Paul's really illogical. Because you'd have to say everything but Christ was created through him, you know, uh, uh, because, uh, you know, they, they, Paul would have had to say it in some other way other than the way that you said it here. But again, uh, so, so the, con the, the context uh, uh, proves the point that I'm making. But the other thing is that the firstborn, again, once you understand what Paul meant by, by giving Jesus the title of the firstborn, again, wasn't, that he's, that he's simply the first in the sequence of creation. Paul isn't talking about him, you might say, in chronological sequence to creation. He's talking about him in his authority in relationship to creation. As the firstborn in the family has authority in relationship to the family, especially in terms of inheritance, so Jesus Christ has authority in relationship to creation analogous to the firstborn of the family. That's what Paul is saying here, clearly. And, and, and thus... You know, what he says immediately after this makes absolutely perfect sense. Look at verse 16. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Because as the firstborn, he's not only the one through whom everything came into being, but he's also the heir of all things. They all belong to him. He ultimately will inherit the whole thing. Because, why? Because he's in the position of the firstborn. And the firstborn is the heir. You might say the primary heir within the family. He, he inherits the authority in the family after, after the father. And so, so, uh, so Jesus Christ stands in that position. And Paul will say that again a little later in a different way. So by him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. So Paul here speaks of every dimension of what we identify as creation has come into being through the Son, who is the image of the invisible God. Now, among other things, and again, part of the context of this, and we'll have a touch of it in chapter 2, is that in the ancient world, the, the Hellenistic world was suffocated by 
a rigorous dualism between the material and the spiritual world. And uh, there was a whole system, this, this isn't consistently so, but, but, uh, but within, uh, within certain realms of, of, uh, of Hellenistic thought, the material world was viewed as evil. And it's the spiritual world which is, which is uh, the good world, if you will. The material world is a bad world, it's an evil world. Plato talked about the body, mentioned this before, as being the prison house of the soul. The purpose of philosophy is to free you from your body and, to, and to, uh, to bring you through your mind, through your reason, into relationship with absolute being and absolute goodness. In other words, it's to get out of the bondage of this material world. Well, Paul here is countering that because what he's saying is that this material world, everything invisible and visible, everything in heaven as well as on earth, has come into being through the Son, who is the image of the invisible God. And so, this created world is stamped with the goodness of God. Because God made it. It wasn't made by some inferior being. It wasn't put together by the devil. It wasn't by some demiurge or some, some, uh, some sub-god or some counter-god or some uh, antithetical god. The one true living God created all things. Again, in Genesis chapter 1, God looks upon the days of creation, and he says, and, it, and, and God saw that it was good. It was good, it was good, it was good. This created world comes from the goodness of God, and therefore, despite what Satan and sin and the fall and all of that has done to the created world, in its very, you might say, elemental substance, it is good. It is a, it is a gift of God, and we are called to affirm the created world, which means you can enjoy the creation. Now, the creation stands today with a question mark over it because of what sin and Satan and the fall has done to the created world. But if you enjoy watching the sunset over the Pacific, you, you know, and, uh, and, and you, you enjoy the beauty of nature, and you look up into the starry sky, and, uh, you know, and you see something reflected of the grandeur and the glory of God, and, uh, and, and you enjoy sitting down to a good meal, God has given you, you know, the ability to see colors and to taste different foods and to smell different odors. And part of that is to defend your body against, you know, uh, poison and bad smells. But part of it is to give you pleasure and enjoyment. And that's part of the goodness of God's creation given to us through the sun. And so there's a ringing affirmation here of creation because creation is, is related not to impersonal forces, some cosmic joke or some evil being. Creation is related to the Lord Jesus Christ himself through whom it's come into existence. Okay? And it is not only from him, it is for him. So it has its origin in him. He is the mediator of creation. He brings it into existence. And it's his destiny. In other words, everything in this created world is moving toward what? Toward the Lord Jesus Christ as the goal of creation. You say, well, Don, how can that be? Turn over to Romans chapter 8 for just a moment. Paul makes a really a startling statement, and it refers to us as well as to, as to Christ. But uh, <clears throat> look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 22. He says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth. In other words, the earthquakes and the tidal waves and the volcanic eruptions and, all, and, and, uh, and, and the catastrophes on this planet are like the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly 
as we wait eagerly for our adoption of sons, which is the full, you might say, the full completion of, of God's work in us, the redemption of our bodies, which will be the resurrection of the body when Christ comes in glory. For in this hope we were saved. So what Paul says here is that there's this groaning going on, waiting for the final consummation of God's redemption of the whole of creation. And we're groaning, you might say, not in despair, not in cynicism, not in sorrow. We're groaning in longing for the completion of that work which God has begun in us. So that's a good groaning, you know. It's like a woman who's, you know, in labor. And she's feeling those labor pains and, and you know, and it's pretty painful, <laughs> I've heard. <laughs> uh, but, uh, uh, but, but again, you know, there's this hope and this joy in the midst of the pain. This is good pain. This is not bad pain. Okay. So, everything is coming to being through Christ. Everything is finding its destiny in Him. Its purpose in Him. You know, you know, and what that means, of course, for us personally is that our personal destiny is to be found in Jesus Christ. And what we need to say to the people around us who don't know Him is that you've been made... You know, I, I love to say this to people. I say, you know, as self-consumed as you may be... <laughs> You've been made for more than you. In other words, you aren't the end of your existence. God brought you into existence through His Son. And you find your ultimate destiny in Jesus Christ Himself. And so, if you're, you know, if you're a part of the creation, you're, you've been made for Him because He is the firstborn. He is the one who inherits all things. Okay? Verse 17, He is before all things, so He pre-exists all things, and in Him all things hold together or consist. So He is the glue that keeps everything together. So, we've seen His relationship to the Father. He's the image of the invisible God. His relationship to creation. He's the firstborn through whom and for whom and in Him all of creation exists, okay? And now we see his relationship to redemption starting in verse 18. Paul says, he is the head of the body. Now the body here refers to the body of the redeemed, the body of Christ. He is the head in relationship to the body. And you and I are not the head of the body. Jesus is. <laughs> he is the Lord of the church. He is the head of the redeemed. He's the head of the body, so we belong to Him, and He is the one who has authority as the head. He has life for us as the head of the body, and the, and the body here is namely the church. Paul immediately says He is the head of the body, the church. And by the way, the word church here in Greek means those who are called out. In other words, those who've been called out to belong to, uh, to, to Jesus Christ, united to His body. So the church, before the church is ever an organization, the church is a no, an organism. In other words, we are, we are alive by the Spirit of God, by being united to Jesus Christ and to each other. We are alive uh, in Him. We are that organism. Okay, He's the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, so He started the whole thing, right? Before the church was Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I will build my church to Peter, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So he's the beginning and the firstborn among the dead. So he not only brings the church into being, but he also has conquered death in his glorious resurrection. And so he's the beginning of a whole new humanity that comes forth from him as the risen Lord. 
So he's not only the firstborn in relationship to creation. Back in verse 15, he's also the firstborn among the dead in relationship to redemption. So he's in the, the primary position, both in terms of creation and redemption. That in everything, he might be preeminent or have the supremacy. That Jesus Christ might be exalted in everything. In creation and in the church. All things from him and for him. And, uh, and, and, uh, and, and that, that every, in everything he might be supreme and be exalted. Okay? And, and now, in a sense, here's the corker in verse 19. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. So, Jesus Christ has all the fullness of God in him. This means that he is no created being. He's no angelic being. He bears the very fullness of God. That's, that's uh, the reality of the Son bearing the nature uh, as well as the will and the purpose of the Father. He bears the very divine nature. All the fullness of God dwells in him and through him, Paul says, to reconcile to himself all things on earth, in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his shed cross. So he has come with all the fullness of God in his incarnation to reconcile all things to, uh, to himself through his cross. Okay? So, the reason why Paul brings that in at the end of this paragraph is that Paul now turns from who Christ is to who the Colossians are, or in a sense to who we are. Look at verse 21. Once you, so verse 15, he is, and then verse 21, once you. So now the question is, what does this mean to me? Christ is the one through whom all creations come into existence. He is the very image of the invisible God. He is the head of the church. You know, he is the firstborn from the dead. He is to be preeminent in everything. He will be preeminent and supreme in everything. And, uh, and, and, and uh, all things are reconciled through his cross. Okay, how does that then apply to us? Verse 21. Okay, you, you were alienated. Once you were, this is the classic before and after, okay? Here's your position outside of Christ. Alienated from God, okay? You were separated from God by your sin. Enemies in your minds. So your minds were filled with lies and idols and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, and uh, falsehood, deception, etc., okay, untruth. Uh, you're alienated from God, your minds, your enemies in your minds. And the NIV says, because of your evil behavior. I think that's a bad translation. They put a footnote down here, uh, and they say, or as shown by your evil behavior. That's much better. Because it's out of the alienation, our separation from God, and the darkness of our minds then that our behavior is evil. In other words, our behavior, our evil behavior, uh, you might say, uh, demonstrates or actualizes the alienation that we have from God and the darkness in our minds. To be, if you're stupid in your mind, you're going to do stupid things with your body. You know, if your if your minds are filled with lies, your behavior will then be reflecting, you know, what's going on in your head. Uh, empty head, empty empty behavior, so to speak. So, once again, the issue then is to be confronted by the truth, and this is not only true at the point of conversion, knowing that Christ has died on the cross for, for your sins and coming to Him and confessing your sins and receiving Him as your Savior, there needs to be the continual truth encounter of who Christ is and who you are in Him. And I, I just continually talk to people who, uh, 
You know, I had a long conversation with a brother who's a part of our body here tonight on the phone uh, before I came here, and, uh, and, and he's been struggling with a lot of things in his life and going back over his life and thinking about, you know, so much failure and so many things that he's done with his life that have brought so much shame into his life and what have you. And, and he, he just feels kind of overwhelmed by that, you know. And, and, and he's been a Christian for, for a while. Um, he knows the Bible and what have you, you know. And just, you know, what we were talking about was the necessity to continually confront, you know, that shame, that guilt, not to deny it, you know, not to pretend like it's not there, but to confront, in a sense, you know, the problem with the solution, to bring the cure to the diagnosis. Because if you just stay in, you know, the shame and the guilt and the failure of the past, and you wallow in that, the devil's got you. Okay, so I don't go into denial. I don't say, that never happened, who me, rationalize, justify myself, you know, uh, and what have you. Yes, I'm confronted by that. I'm convicted of that, of that sin, that shame, that failure, whatever. Okay, so that's, uh, you know, okay, that's real. Now let me give you the bigger reality. And that is that Jesus Christ died on the cross to take all of that guilt and shame upon Himself, off of you, onto Him, and at the cross, you are forgiven, cleansed, set free from bondage, from guilt, from the pain of the past, and God wants to bless you now and restore you into uh, you know His purpose for your life, which comes out of all of His goodness in, in creating you and giving you a destiny in Jesus Christ. And so we have to start with the truth encounter that brings us to Christ, in a sense, and then we have to continue to have that truth encounter in our minds so that God then will change, you know, change the rest of us out of the reality of that truth and the power of His Spirit working within us. And that's a continual, in a sense, pilgrimage to walk more and more in the truth and in the light of who God is and what He says about you, not who your parents have said you are and who the world says you are, and then to live in a kind of despair over that. Now, I'm being hard on your parents, so I hope your parents have you know, brought you up to love Jesus and know all the truth of the gospel, but many people haven't had that, that, that joy. So, but by the parents, I just mean authority figures, whether they're you know, teachers or coaches or whatever, you know, who, have, who, who have just um, you know, not, not told us the truth about who we are in Christ. So, Okay, this is who you were, alienated, enemies, and that, that resulted in, uh, in, in, uh, in evil behavior. But now, look at verse 22. Okay, that was before. Here's the after, and we're in the after. But now, he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body, through his physical body on the cross. And again, notice how Paul is stressing here creation and the physical body over against this Greek dualism that denies the, the physical world, okay? by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in His sight. The verb present here, and Paul will repeat it in a few verses, means to present on the day of judgment. Okay, It's a technical term, which means on the day of judgment you will be presented before God holy in His sight, without blemish, free from accusation. Remember, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Remember what Paul says in Romans 8? He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who can bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is it who condemns? So, on that day, we will be holy 
and blameless and there will be no accusation against us when we're presented because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, okay? Now, the condition is, of course, to continue in this. In verse 23, if you continue in your faith and aren't swept away by all the lies and the heresies that are coming in upon the church, if you continue in your faith established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. So Paul says, persevere in this and you, know, and, and you will be presented on that great day. Okay, so... Once you were this, alienated and what have you, and, 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 uh, and enemies of God, now you've been reconciled to God. So, who is Christ? He's the image of the invisible God. He is in the position of the firstborn over all creation. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the beginning of a whole new humanity. He's brought us into fellowship with God through the cross. And how does that operate? What does that mean to me? Well, what it means is that you were alienated. Now you've been brought to God. You were enemies. Now you're friends. Jesus Christ has not only accomplished the work of reconciliation, but now through the word of truth, the gospel, and the work of the Spirit of God, we have been reconciled to God. We have been brought into fellowship, into relationship with the living God. So that's... Uh, that's the consequence of this for the Colossians. So Paul begins with Christ, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. He then applies this to the Colossians. You were alienated, but now you've been reconciled. And then Paul uh, speaks of this in relationship to himself in verse 24. Now I. So Paul now brings himself in as, as, as the witness to the reality of, of this gospel, this good news. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you. And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now let me stop right at this point. This is one of the most controversial verses in the New Testament. <clears throat> if you were to go to a theological library, you would discover that, that there are shelves and shelves of very learned treatises given in relationship to this particular verse. What does Paul mean by this verse? Look at it again. I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's affliction. Now the question is, what is lacking in regard to Christ's affliction? I thought, Jesus said from the cross, it is finished. I thought he suffered once for all for sin. I thought he died and suffered and was raised from the dead, and so his work on the cross, his suffering for the sins of the world is complete. I thought he'd done the whole thing. How can Paul say, I'm suffering and filling up what was lacking in Christ's afflictions? Does this mean the atonement is incomplete? Does this mean that Paul is kind of like a savior along with Jesus? Does this mean there's the sufferings of Christ and then the sufferings of Paul and Paul's completing what was lacking in Christ? Could that be possible? Is Paul's, you know, has Paul become a heretic? Has he just dropped out right here and gone bananas in verse 24? Uh, and all, as I say, all kinds of bad theology has been built on a misunderstanding of this text. You know, like like somehow the church participates in the atonement, and uh, you know, and and uh, and and like in the mass, you know, uh, 
there's the miracle of transubstantiation within the, within the Roman Catholic Church, and so somehow Christ is being sacrificed again and again. So there's the continual sacrifice of Christ within the church, not just the sacrifice of Christ on the cross once for all. And so all of this has gone on. Well, let me answer the question. I'll give you the definitive answer tonight. You don't have to go to the library and read all these books. What is lacking in Christ's sufferings? Nothing objectively. Okay? Nothing objectively. Jesus Christ suffered once and for all on the cross. His work of atonement is complete. When he said from the cross, it is finished, it was finished. He was right. The work has been done. Objectively, Christ has suffered once for all. Okay. Well, what then are the sufferings of Christ that are incomplete? And the answer is, while Christ objectively has suffered once for all and completed his work on the cross, he still suffers subjectively through the suffering of the church. Catch this. On the Damascus Road, Paul is confronted by Christ. What does Jesus say to Paul in that moment? You know, Paul is persecuting the church, right? He's going to Damascus to arrest the Christians, bring them back to Jerusalem. He's putting them into jail. He held the cloaks of the men while Stephen, the first martyr, was being stoned and put to death. What does Jesus say to Paul on the Damascus Road? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Me. Why? I'm not persecuting you, Lord. I'm persecuting these Christians. <laughs> no, you're persecuting me. In other words, again, remember, the church is, is an organic body. When we're united to Jesus Christ by faith through the work of the Spirit, we're, we, we become members of His body. We are the living body of Christ in this world. Those of us who belong to Him, we also belong to each other. And what we experience, Jesus experiences. Again, his work is completed on the cross of, of atonement, but his work of intercession continues for us, and he continues to suffer in this world not to save us. He continues to suffer in this world to sanctify us. He, he through his church, continues to suffer on our behalf. In other words, Jesus feels your pain. Heartbroken over the suffering of this world and who continues to participate in the sufferings of this world through those whom he loves and whom he commissions, like the Apostle Paul, to, uh, to bear that suffering for the purpose of the gospel. So objectively, the work is done. Subjectively, the suffering continues, if you will. And what's lacking in this sense, you see, there's always a lack until Christ comes in glory, until everything is consummated. Because Jesus continues to participate in the sorrow and the suffering of this world. And that's the only possible, possible answer to the great holocaust that continues. See, how can we, you know, how can we even deal with the things that are going on in Bosnia and, and Rwanda and these, you know, I mean, the unspeakable horror of the suffering of this world? And I, you know, I don't have an, an I, you know, answers, but I don't have the answer. You know, I mean, answers like it's a fallen world and the devil's real and blah, 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 and we can talk about all that. But, but along with that, we have to say that God's heart is broken over the suffering of this world. Why? Because he loves this world. I mean, there's many a parent whose heart has been broken over, over, you might say, the suffering of their children. You know, they've seen their children 
get into trouble and do all kinds of crazy things and be hurt and what have you. And, you know, many parents have stayed up, you know, night after night, looking out the window, waiting for their kids to come home and their kids haven't come home. They've experienced that pain, that sleeplessness, that heartbreak and heartache. Why? Because they love their kids. That's why. You think God's aloof from the suffering of this world? You think God doesn't care about what happens in Rwanda? You know, or the concentration camps of Nazi Germany? Not so. All things were made through Him. God, God has brought this creation into existence for His glory. And He's given us the awful gift of freedom, which means that we can rebel against Him and crucify each other. But He's not aloof from that. And the reason why we know He's not aloof from that is because Jesus Christ came into this world and suffered. He's not aloof from suffering. And He continues to suffer through His church. I graduated from Princeton Theological Seminary many years ago, and so I get the alumni magazine. And there was a sermon by a a more recent graduate of that particular seminary who became a medical doctor after he graduated from seminary. He now heads a Christian relief organization called Samaritan's Purse, and uh, and there was a sermon that he preached, uh, printed in our alumni magazine, after he had gone to Rwanda and had brought a medical team there and seen the most unspeakable horror that he'd ever seen in his whole life. And he said two things. One is that it was the most unspeakable horror that I've ever seen in my whole life. And the the, the hopelessness and the kind of the glaze upon the eyes and the faces of these people who had just been so devastated and children who had lost their parents and the horror of the Holocaust that took place, he said it was just overwhelming. And at the same time, he was there, they brought in a medical team, they, they began to you know, bring, uh, bring help and, and hope to people and healing. And he talked about, uh, like a, a month or so later, with some of the people that he had, he had first met as refugees who were just in shock from the horror that they'd been through, he talked about gathering together with them in a church. Uh, their faces had changed, their eyes were bright, and they were, and they were praising and worshiping God together, uh, grateful for you know, for his care for them in the midst of all of this horrible pain. And what he was basically saying in the sermon was, we can't explain all the horror, but there's an answer to it in terms of God bringing his love and his mercy into the midst of that horror and, you know, and, 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 and lifting it from, uh, from the brokenness of these people, you know, who, who have come to know him and who can worship him in the midst of all of their pain, you know, and, 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 uh, I guess I just say that tonight to say that Jesus Christ suffers. He suffered objectively. He died once for all for your sins. And He continues to suffer through the pain of His people. And the suffering of, you know, of, that we experience for loved ones who are in pain is a distant reflection of the, of the, of the broken heart of Jesus for the pain of this world and, and the pain that Paul experienced. And so he says, I'm, I fill up in, in my flesh, in my physical body, in my physical suffering, what's lacking in regard to Christ's sufferings. And so, so I'm completing that now for the sake of His body, which is the church, in this world as I suffer. I have become its servant, verse 25, by the commission God gave me to present to you the Word of God in its fullness, the mystery. And this Word is the mystery which has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So that's 
That's the mystery now revealed that Jesus Christ, both in Jew and Gentile, comes in to our lives through the gospel by his spirit and gives us that hope of glory. And so Paul now concludes this chapter, verse 28. We proclaim him. We preach Christ, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom. And Paul's purpose is so that we may present again on the day of judgment everyone perfect or mature or complete in Christ. And so here's, you might say, again, just a summary of Paul's ministry. Christ is the subject of his preaching. Paul carries this proclamation out or this ministry of proclaiming him by admonishing and teaching, by instructing in the truth and exhorting people to live out that truth. Admonishing and teaching every single person, uh, not just the masses, but, but individuals, with all wisdom. And his purpose is to take everyone before the Lord, ultimately on that great day, complete and mature in him. And then Paul signs his own name to this. Verse 29, to this end I labor. Paul puts himself out. Paul works hard struggling with all his energy which so powerfully works in me. And there's the great paradox of the Christian life. Paul says, I labor with his power. (laughs) Struggling with his energy which so powerfully works in me. So ultimately, Paul's ministry is nothing less than the ministry of Jesus Christ himself through Paul. That doesn't mean that you and I just sit around unplugged and aloof. No, we're plugged into the Lord, but He inspires that power and energy within us to do what He's called us to do. Well, that's it for Colossians chapter 1. <laughs> I don't have a glorious conclusion tonight, okay? Other than, again, just to, just to say the obvious and to, and to repeat myself one more time, and that is, Paul's intention here is to show us Christ, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, His relationship to the Father, to creation, and to the redeemed in such a way that all secondary uh, possibilities are excluded by the primary reality of who Jesus Christ is. And the word of exhortation to us tonight is simply keep your eyes on Christ, okay? Keep your eyes on Him. You'll never be disappointed. You'll never be let down. And you'll never settle for anything less. Let's stand together and we'll pray and we'll be out of here.